millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Joint Action Podcast where we have the opportunity to talk about empowering people living with osteoarthritis. Now, as I'm sure for many of you experiencing living with this disease, it's not easy. The associated symptoms such as pain and stiffness can often make everyday activities that once seemed easy, challenging, resulting in a host of negative impacts, including on your mood and mental status. It's important for those who live with the disease that they're educated and empowered to make decisions about the management about their condition in healthcare. However, this is not always the case, with studies showing that about one third of people living with the disease seeking care are satisfied with their treatment. Healthcare providers and their patients need to ensure that the management of the condition is collaborative and that people living with osteoarthritis have appropriate tools and skills to successfully manage their condition. On today's episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Dawn Richards to discuss how people living with osteoarthritis can be empowered to take control of their condition. Dawn completed a PhD in analytic chemistry from the University of Alberta and was working in a variety of roles during the past 20 years. 
However, her diagnosis with rheumatoid arthritis almost 15 years ago instigated a journey to intertwine her passion for science with making the most of her diagnosis. In addition, Dawn has more recently, about a year ago, been diagnosed with knee osteoarthritis. As a patient advocate and volunteer, Dawn is Vice President of the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance and a member of the British Medical Journal's Patient Panel. She has served as a research ambassador from 2014 to 2019 and was the first patient advisor of the Canadian Medical Association's Wait Time Alliance. Dawn advocates for arthritis awareness, access to treatment, the importance of research and inclusion of patients, both in decision-making and as research collaborators. Hello, Dawn, and welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Glad to be here. No, it's a, an absolute pleasure to have you along, and I think it's a really important topic, and I'm really enjoying uh, the opportunity to, to share some time with you, and hopefully the listeners will benefit from that as well. But before we get into the main content, in an effort for me to get to know you a little bit better, but also hopefully for the listeners to do so as well. Can you share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like? Sure. So I guess importantly, David, I, I live with rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis, and we might talk a bit more about that in a bit. So I'm a consultant. I work for myself. And I can honestly tell you that my diagnosis with arthritis fundamentally changed my career path. So I started off as an analytical chemist, which means I was busy doing experiments at a bench, all those beakery kinds of images you get in your head. That was me as an analytical chemist. And my diagnosis changed that and kind of put me in the patient category, so to speak. And I, I saw some really interesting things happening in research where patients were involved as partners. And um, it took me a, quite a while for me to figure out what I wanted to do. And I've landed um, working for myself. And a, a typical day is I help a number of organizations and researchers to do patient engagement. So to work with patients as partners on their team. And then I, I still fall back on, on my chemistry work and I do some work writing scientific papers or helping people write grant applications. But really most of my day is focused on helping people engage patients as partners in what they do and bringing those perspectives to the table. It's such an important voice that often doesn't get heard. Is that something that's relatively new in Canada or, and when you I guess, bring that perspective of people who live with arthritis to, you know, a researcher or a grant. Is that something that do you think they're familiar with, that they're getting used to? So in, in arthritis in Canada, I have to thank many patient leaders and researchers and clinicians for leading the way. I, I would say, you know, this goes back just over a couple of decades now in terms of engaging patients, partners in research here. So, you know, in arthritis, it's probably a bit more established than in some other areas. But, you know, I see a lot of work being done, partly because funders are demanding it, at least for, in, you know, in some areas, you, you need to have a patient partner on an application. And I guess, 
you know, people are always pleasantly surprised by perspectives that patients bring to the table. I, I've seen this repeatedly that, you know, people are not really quite sure how patients might contribute to research, but I always kind of equate it to people have lived experience that is really complementary to the research experience people have or the, the medical training that they have. And because they live with a condition day in and day out, they just bring a critical perspective that many members of the research team don't have. Some do, but many don't have. And so they just ask different questions, you know, bring different insights that I, I think really wonderfully round out what a research team looks like. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree. It's such such a critical role. And while we're there, Dawn, do you mind if I get you to just share a little bit about your experience living with arthritis? Sure. So I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis back in 2006. That was after about a year and a half to two year journey to getting diagnosed. So I was in my early thirties. At that point, arthritis was not on my radar. I don't know many people at that age who think, oh, uh, you know, my hands swelling up and not, not bending or not being able to fit into my shoes in the morning. Like arthritis isn't the the thing you think is causing that. So lucky for me, I had a family physician who had seen someone else in her practice recently with really similar symptoms around my age. And she, you know, a year and a half, I'm going to say that's relatively quickly that she put the pieces together. And I was persistent in going to her and, you know, hindsight's 2020 when you connect those pieces together. But when I'm coming for one-off visits for her to connect all of those dots. I'm really grateful for. And then fast forward to during the pandemic, when I actually had an MCL sprain, and uh, that led me to have some imaging done on one of my knees. And that sprain seemed to be taking a really long time to heal, at least in my mind, and not being a clinician, I, I didn't know that that was likely because I had osteoarthritis in, in that particular knee. So it, it's not really a surprise that I also have osteoarthritis, both inflammatory arthritis and osteoarthritis do have a, a big presence in uh, my mom's family. But I guess I was a little surprised on the most recent diagnosis, but so far far it's been fairly controlled and it's been a journey of in both um, my diagnoses finding what works for me working with my healthcare providers get me where I need to be quite honestly yeah brilliant and you know in your role as as an advocate for people with arthritis do you find that you obviously do you pick up things along the way from the people that you're interacting with the, the clinicians the researchers that you can then also apply for your own care yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. I always go into things, you know, listening. I love to hear what other patients do to take care of themselves. Like I call them hacks, right? Patients often share with each other uh, little tips and tricks that they have found work over the years. And yes, absolutely engaging with the different types of clinicians and researchers that I work with. I can take things from there and either work that into my own care or work that into some of the work I do as a volunteer with the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance and, and help our community learn more about what might work for them. Yeah, brilliant. I guess the reason for asking that question is I just wanted to give 
your role a, a strong plug? Because I think oftentimes people who live with that experience of disease may get asked to be involved in different activities and feel reluctant. But, you know, I think irrespective, the voice that they bring is so, so valuable. And oftentimes they may not necessarily be comfortable acting within that environment, but I guess please understand that, you know, that perspective is so enriching for the work that we do. So if you do get asked, hopefully you'll take it up. Now, just following on from that introductory question about what a typical day might look like, when you're not at work, what is it that you like to do, Dawn? Yeah, so I love to bake. That's something that I've, I've quote, worked on during the pandemic too. I've upped my baking game. You started making bread? Yes, I've been making a lot of bread. I've been making pastries, pie crusts, all kinds of tasty things. The issue is there's only two of us in the household. So whatever gets made also gets consumed by us. And that leads to the next activity, which I love to do. And that's exercise. So exercise honestly has been a huge part of my life since I was a kid. I played all kinds of team sports Now I do different things and it's been interesting with my OA diagnosis and my knee injury this year, it's led me to discover new things like yoga, like a lot of stretching, a lot of lower impact activities that I maybe wouldn't have tried before. So, and then I, I just like to explore. So, you know, we've kind of been at home for the pandemic, a a great deal. That was a lockdown where I live in Toronto and we found new ways just to explore our own neighborhood and our, our own city, which is, you know, I wouldn't have done that if it were not for the pandemic. So those are a few things that I, that I like to do, David. Yeah. I mean, there there have been some positives that have come out of the pandemic. I think for, for some people in particular, I guess, getting to know their own local environs a little bit better. You know, I know for one, I used to travel a lot internationally and obviously haven't haven't done that at all for a couple of years. But, you know, getting to time spent with family and time exploring the local environment, it's been a wonderful bonus. Yep, agree. Now, Dawn, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Okay, let me see if this is five. Well, this is actually two, but I'd say it's one word super straightforward. (laughs) And sometimes that gets me in a lot of trouble, uh, but I am very straightforward. Much better to be direct and honest though. (laughs) That's what I say too. I think I'm curious. I think I'm very determined. So, you know, like my career path was not something that I'd set out to do, but I decided, you know, this was something I wanted to invest in and try out and so far, so good. So determined, open-minded. And I, I find that the older I become, I feel like I'm more open-minded and I'm more open to other people's experiences and listening to what those have been. And then I guess my last one, and I feel like this is something I've honed during the pandemic too, is being reflective and really trying to think about being thoughtful Again, reflecting on, you know, what people have told me, what their experiences have been, and just trying to be really thoughtful about my interactions with, with people. So I think that's five. Yeah, no, and they're, they're all wonderful qualities. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I, I think, again, potentially another bonus that's come out of this pandemic is that opportunity for hopefully a little bit more pause and opportunity to think about our interactions and the impression that we want to leave on the world. So thank you so much for sharing that. Now, Dawn, obviously the main content of today is really talking about 
how we can empower those who live with arthritis the best we can. And this followed on from a wonderful panel discussion that Dawn and Karam Khan organized recently with us. We've shared that recording on YouTube. So for anybody who wants to get access to it, we'll, we'll share that link in the show notes. Dawn really was wonderful in coordinating all of that content. So we're really going to hopefully give a little bit of a retrospective of that content today, but in an effort really to help empower those who live with the disease. And again, this, this could go anywhere, Dawn, but uh, we're going to start off with hopefully some lobbed balls that are softballs in your direction. But what are some barriers that people who live with arthritis face when they seek care for their arthritis? I want to focus a little bit on osteoarthritis too. I think, I think one barrier And I'll just be honest with you is that people accept it. So there's this perception out there that, you know, it's part of aging. There's nothing I can do about it because there aren't great pharmacological treatments. I'm too old to get really active or, you know, it's too hard to lose weight. So I'm just going to put that out there that I, I feel like, you know, one barrier can be individuals themselves. And I'm not trying to lay blame, but I, you know, I think a lot of things contribute to that. So I think that part of this podcast and part of the webinar is kind of helping smash some of those stereotypes for folks. Um, And I know we're going to get stereotypes a bit later on. I think though, you know, people get thrown a lot of barriers by our systems, no matter where you are globally, right? So part of it is, you know, depending on your age and your sex, to be brutally honest, or your gender being taken seriously for, you know, what you show up to a clinical encounter about. I think also in in some aspects, you know, getting good advice and help with exercise sometimes can also be a real issue. I don't think necessarily all clinicians feel really comfortable with prescribing different parts of exercise or what that might look like for different people. Our system often has us advocating for ourselves. So really pushing to getting a diagnosis and, and that may mean multiple visits, um, especially if something is a little more tricky to figure out, or like in my case, you know, I had multiple visits before I received a diagnosis. So, you know, to be fair, the, the system puts up barriers on us quite often. So I think those are a few that I'll kind of start off with that I heard in the webinar and that I've also experienced myself. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great place to start. And really just to emphasize a couple of those, because they're such, such key points is that, you know, obviously, I think the common community perception is that osteoarthritis is an inevitable part of getting older. And that unfortunately, as a consequence of that, people feel that, you know, as part of aging, this is just something that they should accept. But, you know, really just to strongly encourage people consistent with what Dawn is saying is, be more proactive and get out there and try to do something more for your health. There are a lot of things that can be done um, and you don't necessarily need to be just accepting of the diagnosis that this is part of aging because there's a hell of a lot that can be done. And likewise, you know, if, if you go along and you're engaging with health professionals who aren't taking you seriously and aren't giving you messaging and advice and constructive suggestions as to the best way to deal with your disease, and you've, you've tried that repeatedly, then potentially consider having that conversation with a different health professional 
uh, that hopefully would be more receptive to the questions that you're asking and actually listening to your requests. Now, Dawn, obviously you touched upon a little bit of this in your first response, but a lot of people, when they come along and they seek care from health professionals, uh, they're labeled for whatever reason. What, what are some of the labels that are often given to people who present with arthritis? The ones that I heard in the webinar from Linda Hunter, I have to credit her is, you know, this label of, but you look fine, right? <laughs> you look fine and you seem to be dealing with this. Okay. So you're, you're probably actually fine. Right. And again, whether we use the word labels or stereotypes, I, I think to me, they're somewhat synonymous. So yeah. Okay. Perfect. So I, I think the other one is, you know, being a a woman in the system, quite honestly, you do need to advocate for yourself. But again, Linda Hunter brought this up that you have to be careful if you're being seen as assertive or aggressive or pushy. So there's often that kind of fine line between being, I'll say, quote, the good patient and, you know, the, the patient that's really pushy or problematic. Or sometimes I hear the term difficult patient, right? If a person brings in too many questions or or, you know, asks too much. Um, so I've, I've heard that term before too. Another one that, again, I heard Eileen on the webinar talk about is, you know, but you're too young for that, right? Like it, it couldn't possibly be that. It's mostly older people that are diagnosed in that way, or, or you might be seen as too old sometimes, right? So it's interesting how people have perceptions of specific sweet spots for different diagnoses. And then again, another one is, and I, I think partly this goes with being a, a woman is, you know, it's maybe, are you sure about that? Um, some of this might be in your head. There may be rushes to, you know, mental health diagnoses or, you know, kind of appearing almost hysterical. So I, I don't think any of those are fair. Um, but again, these are some of the perceptions that I mean, I've experienced some of these and I've heard many other people experience some of these as well. I'm sure you've heard different ones too in your experience as a clinician, David. Yeah, no, no, sure. And really just to echo a lot of what Dawn's saying there is that, you know, I think most health professionals, when they're interacting with people who live with disease, really want the person that's in front of them, the, the patient, to be their strongest advocate, to care about their disease and to care about the management of that disease. But as Dawn's saying, sometimes people who live with disease can take that a little bit too far. Um, and, you know, if they're, if they're overly aggressive and overly assertive, sometimes that will actually inhibit the conversation and you won't necessarily get the best outcome from the interaction as you should. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, health professionals should act that way. I'm just suggesting that if you've got an overly aggressive person that sits in front of you, whilst they are advocating for themselves, and hopefully that understanding from the health professional will come from that, sometimes it will actually inhibit the flow of the conversation, inhibit uh, the interaction, and potentially won't walk away from that as, as best you could. So by all means, be informed, be a strong participant and a strong advocate for yourself, because there is no one that's going to bat harder for you than you can yourself. But there are limits to how productive that can be. And sometimes it will actually inhibit a fully engaging conversation. Yeah, and you know, to be fair, David, clinicians are people too, right? Yeah. And just like I think about when I'm out on the street, and you know, I see somebody react and in, in some kind of way to something, I always think to myself, 
you just, you never know what's going on in somebody's life. Right. And that's often not part of your discussion in an exam room. And so, yeah, everyone's a person, everyone's got lots of layers going on beneath what you're there to talk about. And so, you know, it's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So Dawn, obviously we've spoken about what some of those barriers are, but how might we overcome some of those barriers and and put obviously the power back in the person who lives with arthritis hands, as opposed to being completely dominated by the health professional, the clinician. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I mean, I think as a person in a system, you often feel like it's the system that's in control of many of your experiences in it, right? So, you know, some of the things that I've heard from people, including from Linda and Eileen on the webinar is keeping a file of, you know, your own experiences and so that you can recall things, you can pull things up. I mean, some systems have great electronic medical records. It all depends on where you are, but, you know, understanding a lot about your own experiences within the healthcare system, the types of medications you are on, the types of specialists you've seen and doing your homework, I think in advance of your appointments is really important and coming prepared to have the discussion with your clinician. I know this might sound really ridiculous, but I actually will practice what I'm going to communicate. You know, I think the onus is on us as patients to really try our best to communicate what we're experiencing and going through. I know, you know, I've had lots of physicians then probe um, with questions based on what, what I'm trying to articulate feeling, but if we don't do our best to actually articulate, you know, what we're experiencing and what we're going through. Um, It's going to be a lot harder for them. I would encourage people to stick to their experiences, right? Like stay focused on what you're there to communicate and to get across to people. It's kind of like when you're in a meeting, you want to stick to the meeting topic. You want to stick to like solutions and be focused on coming out of that encounter, feeling like you've talked about what you went to talk about. And then, you know, some of the other things I heard uh, partially from yourself and Linda Trong in our webinar, which I think are great quotes, like Linda said, patients know their bodies best. So, you know, for clinicians to not forget that I live day in and day out with something. So what I've decided to come to you to talk about is something that's impacting me and is really important. I love when clinicians use language, like what matters to you? What brings you here today? Like, what can I help you with? You know, that kind of starts the encounter really differently. Listening and acknowledging. I mean, again, we heard in the webinar, the power of Linda simply being acknowledged, Linda Hunter, and her provider saying, I'm going to help you the best that I can. And that goes a long way. And I think that also helps build trust if you don't feel like you, you need to rush out the door because they've got a full waiting room or, you know, a list of other people that they need to see. And some of the other things that I've heard or thought about too, again, Linda Trong mentioned partnering with patients versus dictating to them what needs to be done. And I think you, David, brought up, you know, shifting language to empower patients and their lives, right? So, I think I've talked a lot about language because I think that that really can set the tone for an appointment. 
it can set the tone for openness to have a conversation and for someone to not feel rushed. And I think just subtle shifts in language can make just huge differences in the comfort someone feels and um, that they're feeling really listened to in a clinical encounter too. Wonderful coverage and really, I think, a thoughtful reflection on a lot of the content that was that was covered in the webinar and I think hopefully really helpful advice for a lot of people out there who are living with disease and in particular, you know, really thinking about how best you prepare prior to your appointments and make sure you, that you do that and as engaging and constructive way as you can. And as I think you're really trying to enforce, don't be a passive bystander here. You know, you've really got to be your, your best advocate. Um, and hopefully you'll find a health professional that's willing, uh, receptive, and is a good listener and wants to, to focus on the challenges that you're bringing forth. But from time to time, and I'm not suggesting that this is the usual circumstance, but there, there may be times where that interaction is not as constructive as it could be. So what are some red flags about a clinician that you've experienced as a, as a person who lives with arthritis when you've gone to seek care? Yeah. So one is not totally being dismissed, but it's kind of on the dismissed scale, right? So, you know, having, for example, a complaint about pain and, you know, the response coming back to not really be about treating my pain, but we'll treat the other symptoms and then you'll be fine. A kind of just like not quite jiving on, on that type of conversation. I've also been part of encounters where I brought up very personal topics with clinicians because these are things that are really important to me. And I'm not certain they'll be able to do anything or to help me out with it. But again, being you know, fairly dismissed as this is something you're going to have to deal with. I can't help you with that. I think there are probably different ways, for example, that that you know, could have been phrased back to me because that certainly made me feel like I should shut down and never have that type of conversation again. You know, another red flag too is so in Canada where I am, you know, we've got some services that are covered by the government, other services that are sometimes uh, paid out of pocket or by private insurance. So, you know, some, some red flags is when the encounter seems to be more about setting up a specific number of sessions versus, you know, focusing on like what we're there to talk about. And, you know, maybe I don't need 10 sessions that are going to cost me X number of dollars, you know, but we work towards how many sessions I might need. Right. So it, it almost felt like more of a sales pitch than like, we're, we're going to take care of you and, and make sure you get the best care. I would encourage people again, this is kind of part about doing your homework and again, this isn't going to happen all the time, but when I've had clinicians offer me treatments that I know are not proven treatments or don't have good evidence related for the problem that I went in there with. And so like, for example, I'd done some homework on a specific type of intervention and I knew that there wasn't great evidence on this and, and maybe it'll work for me. Maybe it won't. Uh, but again, it was more of a sales pitch to get me to buy a device versus anything else. So again, this isn't like an everyday encounter, but, you know, just being really mindful, is this person really listening to what you're saying and, and really trying to find the best solution for you? 
or are they trying to find the best solution to maybe make some extra money or to maybe get you out of the office faster than you need to be out of the office? So those are a couple of red flags, but I'll be honest, I haven't had many of those. And and I've pushed back on some of them too, with some of the information that I had about them. Yeah, that's really, really helpful, Dawn. And again, I think hopefully helpful, constructive advice for people who are listening particularly around the concern that you expressed with regards being dismissed about concerns that were really important to you. Oftentimes in clinical practice, you'll go along to a particular specialist who's got expertise in one particular area and not infrequently a person with arthritis, for example, will express a concern about an area of expertise that they may not necessarily cover within their remit of expertise. So if you're asking a question about something that might not fall within their remit, just elaborate a little bit further and potentially ask them, well, if this doesn't fall under your remit, is there anybody else that you could uh, recommend I talk to? And the last point that you were making, particularly around the remuneration aspect of medicine, there are conflicts involved in most healthcare. Um, Most health professionals, I think, are really practicing appropriately and really have the patient at the front of their mind and improving health outcomes as best they can. But not infrequently, you might come across someone who's potentially got more material interests at the front of their mind. So if that runs a concern, again, be direct, ask them the question, you know, am I doing this for you or is this what's best for me? Um, And how much are you directly making from this? Don't feel shy about asking those questions because I think it's important that you be as informed as you can. Now, Dawn, I think we've probably covered a lot of what I was going to ask next, but is there anything more that you wanted to say about preparing for an interaction as you go along to seek healthcare? Yeah, I think, I think you're right, David. I think we've covered a lot of them, but maybe just to recap, you know, some of the things I would say is prepare your list of questions. Sometimes it's also helpful to talk to your spouse or a family member about them. I know we, we do this um, with my in-laws. My mother-in-law will come up with her list of questions for her uh, family physician and we'll add to them. And I know she writes them down and she'll ask them. Also make sure you get those questions answered. And if you can't get them answered to your point, David, of maybe this doesn't fall under this healthcare provider's area of expertise, then ask um, where you might otherwise get those questions answered. I also don't hesitate people when you're getting those questions answered, if more questions come to mind, like just continue the conversation, right? You shouldn't feel shy about, you know, like I, I didn't think I could ask another question sort of thing. And then like, I think, you know, part of being um, really active in your care is asking like, what can I do? Right. If I, if I haven't asked about something already or, Um, Like, I don't know what I don't know as a patient. So what can I actually do? Uh, Where can you direct me for credible resources? Or like, where might I read more about this? What supports are out there, you know, that you would recommend as a clinician? So I think those are a couple of others that I would put out there. And again, I don't know where our listeners are, but, you know, I have a few encounters with my rheumatologist throughout the year. So those particular visits, I need to make the most of so that in between visits, 
I feel like I've got the information I need. Yes, I can call my rheumatologist if I really need to get in, but quite frankly, I, I would rather not. And so I just like, I pack in as much as I can into those encounters. And, you know, lucky for me, my rheumatologist is good with that, but I'd encourage people to think of it that way. You know, when you're paying for a product, you, you want to get the most out of it. And I know many people in, you know, in Canada and other places where we have healthcare systems where we're not paying directly out of pocket when we go, but we are paying, right? We're paying massive tax dollars into our system. And so don't forget that you actually are paying for your care and, and you should feel like you're getting what you need out of it. Yeah. Great advice. And hopefully again, really helpful for everybody who's out there. And I, I think critical from what Dawn is saying is to make sure that you're not a passive bystander here, that every time you go along, you're getting the maximum out of that that you can. So fully prepare in advance, you know, have your questions written down so that you know that you're getting your concerns addressed um, and walk out of there, hopefully, with a stronger sense that you're really in control and that you're actually going to do the best for yourself. Because so much of this, as Dawn is saying, all of this is so much about you being empowered, being your best advocate, but most importantly, uh, that you get as much information as you can to help with the management of your own disease. Um, because ultimately, this is an illness that will, for most of you, you'll have for the rest of your life, and you need to do the best you can to look after that as best you can. Um, now, Dawn, your role in the work that you do is so, so important. How can people who live with arthritis get more involved in research or, or other aspects of healthcare from not just a, a person who comes along seeking help, but actually contributes meaningfully? I like to kind of differentiate that you might want to participate in research, right? And there's always opportunities to participate, whether you're in a, a clinical trial or a study where you might respond to surveys or be part of a focus group. So, you know, there's that aspect of participating in research. And, you know, often you can ask your healthcare provider or you can look up uh, sites at academic institutions that do research, or you might go to a health charity or a patient organization. They will often have opportunities to participate. Some of the work that I do is related to participation in research. And then other work I do, as I mentioned, is engaging patients as partners in either on research teams or as part of healthcare teams. And so again, I think many patient organizations and health charities will be able to direct you to places where you might be engaged as a partner and bring your perspective. They may even have their own uh, roles that they're looking for. Like I know many patient partners review grants and you might think I can't ever review a grant, but uh, yes, you can. <laughs> and um, that, you know, they'll often provide you with supports and training to do that. Again, if you see a healthcare provider in an academic setting, they, they should be able to direct you to people and organizations who are out there to partner with patients. So those are just some options. Unfortunately, like there's no one place to go. You might have to do a bit of digging, but at this point, you're an advocate for your health anyway. You probably don't mind the journey to potentially being a, a research participant or a research patient partner. Yeah, and it's it's such an important voice to have at the table. And you know, for health professionals who are listening out there, who don't currently necessarily have that uh, voice resonating and changing the direction of what you do, 
get those people that you're seeing uh, who live with the disease more involved. Um, it's such a valuable perspective. Now, Dawn, is there anything else that we haven't touched upon that you might like to emphasize before we get into the closing questions? I don't think so, David. I mean, I guess just one thing I'd like to make sure people understand is, you know, when you live with a chronic disease, you often feel like much is out of your control, but I'd really encourage people to switch the focus on what they can control. And there's actually quite a bit that you can control. And it, it really is a matter of just kind of flipping that I can't control things on its head and engaging in a dialogue potentially with your, your healthcare providers about what you can control. Yeah, it's really superb advice. And thank you so much for recapping such important messaging, because I do think people will find that incredibly valuable. And Again, just to re-emphasize, this follows in the back of a, a recent uh, panel discussion that we had, and we'll provide a link to that panel discussion in the show notes for anybody who wants to dig into that a little bit further. So Dawn, this is the, the fun part, hopefully, of the conversation. Not that the last part hasn't been enjoyable, but... Um, <laughs> we'll see. A rapid fire round. So a uh, favorite book? Uh, I think it's The Alchemist. Wonderful. Favorite movie? The Princess Bride. Superb. Dog or a cat person? So I don't have either. And I'm going to twist this and say, I really like cats who are kind of like dogs. Like they want a bit of attention, but not too much attention. Right, right down the middle. Favorite quote? I think uh, I'm going to go with well-behaved women seldom make history. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very good. What's your favorite food? So I'm, I, I guess I have to ask a question here. Could coffee count, David? Because I love a cup of black coffee. Yeah, we'll let you, we'll let you have that. Okay, it's simple, but I, I really love coffee. Do you have a bad habit? I love sugar. Yeah, that, that will uh, be the toxin that causes a lot of problems for you. Where would you like to go on holiday? So at this point, I'd like to go anywhere more than 50 kilometers from home at this point in the pandemic, David. But I'll be honest, one day, if we can move around a bit, I would love to go back to Australia. I was there many, many years ago, and that's a place I would like to go back to. Oh, well, if you're visiting, please let us know. What superpower would you have? I would like to fly. You know, I used to have a ton of flying dreams, and some of them have come back during the pandemic. So I think that would be amazing. Great. If you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Yeah, this one I had trouble with. I'm going to say I don't really have a favorite, uh, but I would say, honestly, anyone who I can engage in authentic conversation is a good person for me to meet. So I, that doesn't really answer your rapid fire question. <laughs> no, it's a brilliant, brilliant answer. Brilliant answer. Because I think a lot of a lot of conversations people have these days probably don't lack the sincerity or meaning that they otherwise should. And what would you do if money were not an issue? Well, I would love to travel again, and I would, I would love to do all kinds of things. But I'll be honest, I'm a fairly simple person. I can tell you right now that I would sleep in a bit more each day. I would exercise more because I can. I'd probably spend the afternoons baking. And I think I would volunteer more. And I might even work, to be honest with you. But maybe not work for money. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, there is so much joy in the simple things in life that I think oftentimes we just forget about it. Yeah, there's so much value in there as well. 
Now, are there any particular patient-friendly resources that you think would be valuable to share with our listeners? So I, I would really encourage people to look at what health charities and patient organizations put out that's evidence-based that can, that can really help them out. I also, I guess, would like to point, there's something called the GLAD program and GLAD Canada, for example, has some really great videos of exercises that anyone can do at home that I think are really really helpful and glad is a pro like an evidence-based program for people who live with osteoarthritis. And I know it's, it's run in different places around the world. And again, on the exercise front, cause I, I think this one is so important. There's also um, some, some great work that's at my kneecap.trekeducation.org. And these are some videos that uh, Dr. Christian Barton and his colleagues have put together again, like really simple exercises, they walk people through them. And so those are just a couple of things I'd encourage people to look at. Great, great advice. And what we'll do is we'll get a couple of those links and put them in the show notes. Now, Dawn, why do you do what you do? What motivates you? So I have to tell you, David, I feel like I'm at this point in my life where like, I really enjoy my job. I, I just really am blessed and really enjoy what I do. And I wouldn't be here without my diagnosis. So, you know, that's what motivates me is to help other people and to help improve outcomes for people that live with different types of diseases and in different, different healthcare systems. I just, I really feel like I, I am lucky to kind of be able to go between being a patient, being a researcher, kind of a bridge between those two worlds. And I love what I do. So that's what continues to motivate me, quite honestly. Yeah, no, you're, you're blessed because there's uh, not everybody can say that, but I hope you continue to live that life and meaningfully contribute the same way that you are. Now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Really simple. I would say be kind. I feel like kindness goes a long, long way in the world. It goes back to what I mentioned previously about you just never know what someone is going through at that moment in time or in their life. And I think just by being kind to people around you, it sounds cheesy, but we can make the world a better place. Just, you know, one kind gesture at a time. I'll be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Such helpful advice. And hopefully people can continue to live that way. And if just in closing, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people living with arthritis? Yeah, I'm going to go back again to taking back some control. So I just really encourage people to not feel like everything is out of control. It may seem like that, but, you know, things like sleep, watching what you eat, exercise, really working with your healthcare providers to get answers for what matters to you and what works for you. Um, please don't feel helpless. There are a lot of people that want to help, but you have to do your part in between seeing those folks. So that I think is my closing message, David. That's a great way to finish Dawn. Now, thank you so much for the wonderful privilege to have a chance to chat to you further about a topic that is so, so important. And I hope the listeners get as much out of it as I have. Um, and thank you so much again for the wonderful contributions that you're making to people who live with arthritis with the, the wonderful insights, the clear thinking and the transparency and honesty that you bring. It's so, so important. Thank you. Thanks, David. I appreciate it.
So we could have titled this particular podcast Power to You, but ultimately it's really about hopefully providing you information that will empower you as a person living with osteoarthritis in seeking healthcare and doing the best for yourself as an advocate for your own care. We recognize that there are challenges, uh, the barriers to care, oftentimes stereotypes get thrown up that make it difficult for you to get well-balanced and thoughtful care. But there are ways to overcome those. And hopefully by some of the advice that we've brought out today, whether that be you know, preparing adequately in advance, thinking about questions, being adequately informed, making sure that the clinician-patient relationship is as functional as it can be, will help you on your journey. Because again, you should be your biggest advocate. Much of the management of these diseases, uh, including osteoarthritis of the knee, hip, hand, is about managing this yourself. So equipping yourself and empowering yourself with the best knowledge, uh, with the best skills and tools to help manage this disease is so, so important for your journey. So I hope you found today engaging, interesting, informative. Thank you again very much for your time. Really looking forward to an opportunity to speak to you again in the not too distant future. If you do have questions, if you do have feedback, please don't hesitate to email us. But in the interim, between now and when I next speak to you, please take care of yourself as best you can. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.